So, um, Tertullian's an African. And one of the things that, you know, it's very easy for us today to think about North Africa. And uh, North Africa is dominated by Islam. Um, everything west of Egypt, uh, the, the church is eventually wiped out there. Uh, not, Im not, not immediately after the advent of Islam. Islam comes into North Africa in the mid to late 600s, roughly from the 650s onwards. And uh, most historians today suspect that it took probably centuries before Christianity was completely eradicated uh, from the areas that we now call uh, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Um, it's interesting that in those areas that Christianity disappears almost entirely, but Judaism doesn't. And up until uh, probably the last 25, 30 years, there were sizable pockets of Jews in places like Morocco, Tunisia. Most of them have now left because of the excess exacerbation of uh, hostilities between Jews and Muslims. Uh, most of the Jews in these areas of North Africa have left and have gone to uh, Israel. But it's interesting that Judaism persists, but Christianity did not persist. Uh, apart from Egypt. Egypt, you have a fairly strong church. We call it the Coptic Church that has existed down to the present day. Um, it's a very, uh, we won't get into this uh, in our time together, but a very difficult history when you think of it. Uh, Islam conquers Egypt probably in the 640s. So for the last 1400 years, uh, professing Christians in Egypt have lived under persecution. Uh, intense at times, less intense at other times. But uh, we owe an enormous debt to the African church. Uh, if you look at any history of the early church, significant numbers of key figures are African. Uh, Tertullian is the first major theologian. Uh, Cyprian, who we'll look at next week, we've actually already looked at an African. We looked at Perpetua. She's African. Um, uh, the church in Egypt, which claims that the uh, Apostle Mark, who wrote the gospel, came to preach there. The, one of the oldest churches in Alexandria was the Cathedral of St. Mark. Uh, but again, we have a long line of individuals, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, just remarkable thinkers as well as the church. Um, again, this is, this is not what we're looking at primarily, but uh, by the year 300, it's estimated that certain villages in the Nile Delta might have been 80, 85% Christian. And uh, we know that through a variety of means. And so the church took very deep root in Egypt, and particularly in what we, could, what we would describe as northern Egypt, the Nile Delta, um, that area. But uh, Tertullian and Cyprian after him. Oh, the one I forgot was Augustine. Uh, I mean, uh, Augustine is enormously important. Uh, everybody in this room is an Augustinian. I don't, I, don't even, I don't even need to know if you've ever read Augustine. You're all Augustinians. Um, the Reformation is Augustinian. And Augustine wrote um, about 130 books. We've got about 125 of them. Uh, enormously influential. Absolutely enormously influential. All of the Reformers are Augustinian. Uh, wherever Augustinianism in its best sense has flourished, the church has flourished. Uh, some of Augustine... Yeah, it's problematic. Uh, I don't deny that. But uh, Augustine is enormously important. Again, an African 
uh, theologian. Um, in terms of, we don't need to go into this, skin color of these men and women who are African, uh, we have no idea. Uh, Augustine almost definitely would be much darker skinned than probably most of us because his mother's a Berber, so a native uh, African, and so on. Uh, all of these people, though, are Romanized. So even if they are African, they're all thoroughly, they've thoroughly embraced what would become one of the foundation stones of Western culture. And um, we live in a day in which Western culture is under enormous attack uh, from a variety of sources, particularly at universities, uh, where uh, the whole idea of Western culture uh, as helpful, beneficial, etc., um, is heavily attacked by intellectuals. And uh, one of the things I think is helpful for us as Christians, we have received the gospel from the Western church. It's the Western church that preserved the gospel, handed it down to us, and uh, with it, a variety of other cultural forms, among them democracy, uh, the freedom to meet here, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. Uh, these are all part and parcel of Western culture's uh, uh, benefaction, as it were, uh, to us. So Tertullian is African, but he's thoroughly Romanized. Uh, he's born in the city of Carthage. Carthage is exactly where Tunis is today on a map, if you're looking. So it's almost mid-center of uh, that map of North Africa. Tunis, the ruins of Carthage are right outside the city of Tunis in Tunisia. Um, I've never been to that part of the world. Uh, it's interesting, most historians who've studied Augustine have never been to North Africa, uh, partly because uh, parts of it were, heavy, were, were not easy, they're not easily accessible by uh, people from uh, North America or Europe in terms of visas. Uh, Algeria is where Augustine, for instance, grew up. Um, up until the so-called Arab Spring about 15 years ago or so, uh, Tunisia used to be a fairly easy place to get to. It's not as easy. And uh, two of my PhD students recently went there for two weeks to study uh, Latin and at the same time to get exposure to a variety of uh, Roman ruins right outside um, uh, Tunis. And they, they would have gone to, they went to the, uh, the amphitheater where Perpetua died, where Tertullian would have known, would have seen it, uh, etc. Um, the earliest, so Carthage then, is uh, it's a major city in West, the Roman world. Um, Carthage had been the center of an empire, uh, the Carthaginian Empire, and the Carthaginians themselves were a mixture of Berbers and initially Phoenicians. Phoenicia is obviously over in the Middle East, near Le what is now Lebanon, and the Phoenicians planted uh, the colony that we call Carthage somewhere in the around 700 BC. And over the next 300 years, uh, 400 years, it acquired uh, large possessions in the Western Mediterranean. Sicily, probably Sardinia, uh, parts of Southern Spain, uh, probably parts of Southern uh, France, what we call the French Riviera, and then also parts of, of Africa. And in the uh, 200s, as Rome had begun her pathway to empire, uh, by, by the mid-200s, Rome had conquered all of Italy. And uh, the Romans, one of the things that puzzled the Romans was 
why they ended up with an empire. Uh, and in the 100s BC, they'll eventually start to write histories as to how we ended up with an empire. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting story uh, because we don't have all kinds of written records to be able to document why did the Romans move uh, into conquering the entire Mediterranean, most, well, all of Western Europe, uh, m most of the Middle East, all the way over to uh, uh, Basra in southern Iraq, or where that's where Babylon was, etc., etc. Huge empire. And um, uh, in the Western Mediterranean, in the 200s, they run into the Carthaginians. And the Carthaginians' language was Semitic because of the Phoenicians. Uh, they're culturally very different from the Romans. And um, the Romans end up fighting three major wars against them, beginning in the 250s, running all the way through to the 150s. And you probably know the name Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal is a Carthaginian general who performed almost miraculous feats of military strategy, uh, one of which was to take elephants over the Alps. He landed an army in southern uh, France and then went over the Alps with elephants. Like, you can't imagine doing that. But he did, and he appeared in northern Italy and just absolutely scared uh, the Romans silly. And for 10 years, he didn't have any siege equipment. He defeated Roman legion after Roman legion, but eventually ran out of men and uh, no siege equipment to besiege Rome. And so he had to go back to Africa and the Romans would follow him and beat him at a place, defeat him at a place called Zama, uh, just outside of uh, Carthage in the year 202 B.C. And um, he, his name becomes a fearsome name to the Romans. The Romans never fully understand the Carthaginians. Uh, they come from a very different world, Semitic, which is similar to Hebrew, right? Jew, Jewish and Arabic. And um, their culture is quite different. Uh, that Battle of Zama in 202 BC basically was the turning point uh, for the Carthaginians. They begin to lose their empire. And in 146 BC, a final defeat, uh, the Romans um, destroy the entire city of Carthage, enslave most of the population, kill all the leadership. This is their typical strategy. Kill everybody who's in the elite leadership, uh, take, take their children back to Rome, uh, basically train them to be Romans, enslave another half the population. And in some cases, as they did there, destroy the entire city, not leave one stone upon another. And then about 100 years later, they decide to rebuild the city. Uh, they realize its importance in terms of its locale. And so the Carthage that Tertullian grew up in is not the Carthage of ancient history. It was a Roman city, very Roman. And um, he's born, we don't know exactly when, he's probably born around 160. He's converted around 190 He's in his adult years. He's a, he's, a, he's a mature adult when he's converted. And um, he, we know he's writing in 190, and so he's probably born somewhere around 160. Um, we don't know when he dies. Uh, probably dies around 220. So he's about 60 years old at the time of his death, which would be fairly elderly in the Roman world. Average age in the Roman world is probably in the 40s. Um, um, he is one, uh, Carthage at this point in time is around 50,000 people, maybe more, maybe upwards of uh, 80, 90,000 people. 
And uh, that's a fairly large Roman city. Uh, there is a Christian population. When Tertullian's living, it's probably two, 3,000. The earliest Christians are probably Jewish Christians. Again, the, what is amazing is that the Carthaginian church never remembers, unlike the Egyptian church. The Egyptian church remembered, yet Mark brought the gospel to Alexandria. Even if it's probably not right, they are able to pin it down. They pin down the person. The Carthaginians never remember who brought the gospel to Carthage. There's no name. We don't know when. We do know it's Jewish, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, it probably comes out of Jewish refugees after the fall of the temple. The temple fell, if you remember, in AD 70. The Jews in the first Jewish revolt or the first Jewish war against Rome's uh, dominion uh, from 66 AD to 73 AD. And Jerusalem was besieged. It was horrific. Um, it's not bedtime reading. Uh, if you want to ever read about it, Josephus is uh, Jewish war. And it's, it's brutal. And once the Romans breached the walls, it's just a massacre. And a, a significant number of Jews fled, mostly to North Africa, Alexandria, but some of them came to Carthage. And we know that there was a Jewish presence in Carthage after AD 70 because of Jewish tombs. We've got grave graves with Jewish symbolism on them. We have not yet, or I shouldn't say we, but archaeologists have not yet found a synagogue. But there must have been a synagogue because there's a fair number of Jewish graves. And um, this is where the scriptures then probably began to be translated into Latin. Because in the synagogue, the earliest Jews would all spoke Hebrew, right? Um, and the scriptures were read in Hebrew. Uh, their mother tongue would be in Aramaic. Our Lord's mother tongue is Aramaic. But in the synagogue, you use the Hebrew of the scriptures. And so uh, the earliest Jews would have understood Hebrew. But once they have children, right, they're living in a, a, a Roman Latin-speaking city, you can imagine, well, you, you just have to look around us at people who emigrate, right, to our uh, country. Uh, they come, they might maintain their own language. So in Toronto, for instance, there's a significant number of Chinese language churches and some Korean language churches. Uh, by the time you get to the second and especially the third generation, you go to those churches and they've all got English language services because the children and grandchildren, they, they want to fit into the culture and they start to lose the language. And it's uh, plausibly thought that uh, the scriptures would have initially been in Hebrew. I'm talking about the Old Testament. These are Jews, right? They're not reading the New Testament. Would have been in Hebrew. And uh, during the synagogue worship, what they would have done, and they did this in Israel, or rather they did this in parts of, um, of the Jewish communities outside of uh, Israel, they'd read the scripture in Hebrew, a line, and then they'd translate it. Whoever was reading it would translate it uh, either into Greek for Jewish communities in the Eastern Mediterranean, or in Carthage, they'd begin to translate it in Latin. And then you would maybe have a few years would pass, and the people doing the reading would not be as gifted, maybe, in uh, doing the translation on the spot. And so you write it down. You would either write it in the margin, and we have text like this, where it's written in the margin, or even between the lines. 
You go a few more generations, and well, why read the Hebrew? Like nobody, no, nobody can hardly understand the Hebrew. We just read the Latin. And it's probably uh, the Latin translation of the Bible, the Old Testament, and the same will be true for the New Testament, is probably first made in Carthage. You'd think it would be Rome. You know, Rome's the center of the Latin-speaking world, uh, but it's, it's, it's the Christianity in Rome is Greek-speaking up until the 250s. Again, we know that because uh, letters written back and forth between Christians in the Eastern Mediterranean to Christians in Rome, they're always in Greek. When Paul writes Romans, he doesn't write in Latin. He writes in Greek. Um, most of the names of the early leaders are all Greek. Uh, remember we, when we talked about Irenaeus, you may not remember, but when he goes to be a missionary uh, church planter in southern France at Lyon, or Lugdunum, the Romans called it, uh, most of the early Christians there, their names are all Greek names. And uh, so the first translation into Latin, and it's a very, very important translation, because Latin, Latin is the language of Europe down to, well, down to the, easily down to the 1500s, 1600s, and in intellectual circles well into the 19th century. So if this was Yale University, Yale University, 1850, let's say, I would be speaking Latin, and all of you would know Latin fluently enough to be able to follow the lecture. So people say, oh, yeah, Latin died. I was a dead language years ago. No, no, it didn't. Uh, it was a very much a living language, at least among scholars. And uh, all of the European languages, except for Finnish, Hungarian, and Basque, all have significant roots in Latin. Um, French, Spanish, Italian, Romanian, uh, Portuguese are directly descended from Latin. In fact, uh, some would argue that Spanish is modern Latin. Um, if you put Spanish... A uh, text in Spanish beside one in Latin, you can see the similarities pretty quickly. Um, obviously, pronunciation would be quite different, but be that as it may. And uh, we, we know a number of reasons why we know that the earliest translations were made of the Bible in Latin in Carthage. Um, uh, one of which is that the earliest people who translated the Bible into Latin in Carthage must have been Jews who knew Hebrew. So there is another, there are two main, I don't want to get too technical, but uh, there are two main translations of the Bible into Latin in the early years. Uh, in the second century, uh, there is the, what we call the, the North African translation, it's called the Afra, A-F-R-A, and then the, Ita the Latin translation in Italy is called the Itala, I-T-A-L-A. Whoever translated the Afra, or parts of the Afra, must have known Hebrew fluently. And you can demonstrate this a number of ways. For instance, uh, the word for glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew kavod. And kavod, when you translate from one language into another, uh, words have associations. And you may not think this, but when you hear words, there are other words you immediately associate with it. And uh, the problem about translating from one language to another language is you have to capture as many of those associations as you can, and uh, frequently you, you, you can't. Um, so the word kavod has the idea of light, something brilliant in terms of illumination. 
And um, in the Atala translation, the one done in Italy, uh, the, the word that was used to translate kavod is the word that is directly uh, behind our word glory. It's gloria, which we now have as a woman's name, right? Gloria. That's the Latin word for glory. It has no connotation of light. So whoever translated that word in, North, in Italy didn't understand the Hebrew really well. He just, oh, yeah, here, here, here's the word broadly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, call it, uh, I'll use gloria for kavod. Um, in, in North Africa, the person who did the translation used the word claritas. We get clarity from it. And in Latin, claritas has the idea of something that is brilliant, and it captures, the, it captures kavod perfectly because it captures that association. So whoever did the translation in Africa knew Hebrew really well. And those sorts of things are ways we can determine uh, translation. So it's in Carthage that the earliest Latin is translated. Uh, how many Christians by the time Tertullian's born in 160? Probably a few thousand, three, four thousand, maybe. Uh, house churches. So uh, this room, I think I talked a little bit about this before, about a house church. This room probably seats 80, 50 to 80 people. This would be a big house church because you'd have to have a room this big. Uh, I'm not going to ask to embarrass any of you, but I suspect none of you have a room this big in your house to accommodate 80, 90 people. Uh, don't be upset you don't. I mean, <laughs> uh, you'd have to have a house around 10,000 square feet if this was going to be a room in your house where you could do that. And... Uh, most of us don't have houses 10,000 square feet, etc., etc. Um, so, uh, number of quite a number of house churches, 30, 40 people maybe in a house church, and so that means you're probably looking at about 60 to 80 house churches around Tertullian's day. Um, the man that we'll look at next week will be the bishop of all these house churches, Cyprian, and we'll talk a little bit about being a bishop. Tertullian's not a bishop. Tertullian's not ordained. He's a layperson. Um, the uh, church, uh, the first document that we have of the North African church in Latin is a thing called the Acts of the Skeleton Martyrs. About 10 Christians arraigned for their faith in Christ. They're asked a few short questions to deny Christ, sacrifice to the emperor. When they refuse to do so, uh, they are all beheaded. It's, it's a very short text, about two pages. It's the earliest text that we have in Christian Latin. And then the next text we have are Tertullian. And Tertullian wrote about 40 books. We have about 30. Um, he's had a fabulous education. You can tell that, his writing. Um, you get the impression uh, he's a bit breathless at times in the Latin uh, because he misses out verbs. Um, He's, we do this in English sometimes. Um, don't ask me to give you an example right now off the cuff, but we do do. We we don't. We sometimes imply verbs, and you obviously know what's the verb is implied. Usually, the verb to be can be dropped that way. But Tertullian does this with a variety of verbs. His Latin is very difficult to read at times, and I've made the mistake. I teach Latin, and uh, I've made the mistake of using Latin in in introductory levels, and the students struggle, like all get out, to figure out what on earth he's saying. Um, because he, he drops words and he expects, oh yeah, you'll understand what I'm saying. 
Um, but he's got he's a, he's a very uh, he's got a brilliant uh, ability to coin phrases. So the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's the Tullium. Uh, no one is born a Christian. You are born again as a Christian. Uh, these sorts of uh, phrases are all by Tertullian. Uh, what has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? What has philosophy got to do with theology, in other words? Uh, Tertullian is, is a master at turning a phrase. And so it's obvious that he's spent some time learning what we call rhetoric, the ability to speak in public. He is married. Um, he has a beautiful text to his wife. And... Um, I'll talk a little bit about his conversion in a minute, but let me read this. Um, it's, called, it's simply called To His Wife. And uh, uh, what kind of yoke is there between two believers who share one hope, one desire, one discipline? They are brethren, both fellow servants, with no difference of spirit or flesh. Nay, they are truly two in one flesh. Together they pray, uh, together they fast, mutually teaching, mutually exhorting, mutually sustaining. They are both equally found in the church of God, equally in persecution, equally in refreshments. Neither hides anything from the other, neither shuns the other, neither is troublesome to the other. It is a bit ideal. <laughs> that, especially that, that phrase. Uh, even the best of marriages, we, we do fail each other, right? Um, uh, the sick are visited with freedom. Arms are given without danger of ensuing problems. Uh, there is no stealthy signing. A very interesting phrase. I suspect what he's talking about is that sometimes Christians would, when they made each other, they would, they would do the sign of a fish or possibly a cross on their hands. The cross is not used in Christian circles probably until you get into the 200s, so after Tertullian's time. And it was a way of, of, of indicating I'm a Christian. Um, uh, between the two echo psalms and hymns, they mutually challenge each other as to who shall better sing to their Lord. To such, such things Christ rejoices in when he sees and hears them. To these he gives his peace. Um, I've been a, I remember going to a wedding and hearing this passage read. It really is a very beautiful passage that describes in a very ideal fashion, but nonetheless the ideal of Christian marriage. So we know he was married because he writes this to his wife. Uh, there is some indication his wife died. Uh, fairly young, and uh, we'll see what that means for him. Um, he's converted as an adult, uh, probably in the one, early 190s. He's probably around 25, 30 years old. Um, we have no idea how he was converted. We do have two texts. Uh, the first one is on the page I handed out uh, on baptism, 20. And he writes, he is the first author to write a book on baptism. It's got some very odd parts to it. And um, I had a student years ago, a few years ago, did a, his doctoral thesis on it. And so I had the opportunity to go through it with him in quite some detail. And there's some things in there are really just very weird. Um, but at the end of it, there's this line, he says, one thing I ask, that when you pray, you may remember Tertullian, a sinner. And obviously he's writing to people who are He's alive at the time when he's writing, and he's hoping that they will pray for him. And when you, you see that, he actually says on another place, uh, uh, before I was converted, I sinned egregiously or shockingly. 
And most 20th century commentators read that, oh yeah, it must have been sexual sin. And uh, I personally don't think he's talking about that at all. I think he's talking about the fact that he used to regularly go to the Roman amphitheater and watch gladiatorial fights. Because he actually mentions, uh, in one of his letters, uh, he's, he's mentioning how, one of his texts, he says, um, you know, how do people become Christians? Well, he says, we go, we go to the amphitheater to watch the martyrs uh, as pagans. And we watch them die, and we, we ask the question, why are they dying with such peace like that? And as soon as we, we, we ask that question, we start to inquire into Christianity, and as soon as we find out the truth, we become the disciples of Christ. And I think he's actually giving there his own testimony. He doesn't say that explicitly. But I think what he, I think, and then later he, he realizes after his conversion just how wrong it was to go and watch men kill each other for entertainment. And so I think that's what he's talking about and uh, uh, his memory of his, of his past. Just as the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle Paul remembers the past. If you, if you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15. And then in Ephesians, he says, I'm the least of the saints. And he wrote 1 Corinthians around 56, 57. Ephesians around 60 to 62. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the chief of sinners. And it, it, it is interesting. Um, and there is this uh, paradox of the Christian life that we are very aware that we're children of God. He's our Father. We're saved. We can't lose our salvation. But as you get older, you, you get a deeper knowledge of yourself, or at least you should. And you realize what Christ has done for you. And even then, we don't know the half. But uh, as you get older, you, you realize the deceitfulness of the human heart and your own inner sin, and um, so on. And so I don't think Tertullian here is making any comment about his salvation. He's just a, this growing awareness of who he is and what God has done for him. Um, so a man with great, uh, he's had an excellent education. Uh, later generations will remember him as a lawyer. There's no indication he was ever a lawyer. Uh, we don't know what he did for a living. Um, he is married. Um, his wife is a believer. And then she dies probably when he's about 40. And... Um, he starts to be interested in a movement, uh, which I'm going to talk about now, called Montanism, which was also called the New Prophecy. And uh, one of the challenges that the church has had down through the years is uh, the church can grow, Christians can grow cold. Churches can grow, I mean, you as a Christian know, you can grow cold in your love for Christ, in your service for Christ, and churches can grow cold. And you may have been in churches, and you, sometimes you wonder, like, you know, where is this church spiritually as a, as a group of believers? And um, churches were beginning to grow cold, at least some of them, in the 160s and 170s. And in that period, in the middle of what is now modern Turkey, the Roman uh, uh, province of Asia Minor, a man emerged named Montanus, M-O-N-T-A-N-U-S. And... Um, he argued that God was pouring out a new spiritual Pentecost. And he had a number of men and women with him 
who claim to be prophets and prophetesses. And uh, for instance, Montanus claimed, he said, within 10 years of my death, the Lord Jesus will return. And he actually gave a date. And uh, there have been people in our lifetime who did that. Yeah, you may remember some a few years ago. Um, and uh, he dated the return of Christ. And then he had this really odd little twist. Jesus is going to return to his hometown, with a place called Papuza, some little village in the middle of Turk, what is now modern Turkey. I mean, okay, if you're going to prophesy Jesus is return, at least have it Jerusalem, right? <laughs> Who's ever heard of Papuza? Some little little village. No, no offense to any inhabitants of Papuza might be here, but uh, some little dicky little village in the middle of Turkey, what is now modern Turkey. It was really weird. Um, or they, uh, one of the uh, women who was uh, prophetess, Maximilla, claimed, um, the Spirit says, never flee persecution. Ask the Lord to die as a martyr. Don't pray that you won't die of a disease in, in the bed or in, in childbirth. And uh, there are a number of texts like this. Uh, not, nothing... Mostly dealing with ethical issues, not doctrinal issues, um, on how we should live our lives. And one of the things that the Montanists argued, should you remarry after the death of your spouse as a Christian? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 39-40, right? right? If a believer's spouse dies, you are free to remarry, but in the Lord. Paul says that clearly. And the Montanists argued, well, that was, a, that was for that time. Paul's day. The new spirit that's being poured out now says, the spirit now says, do not marry after the death of your spouse. One God, one spirit, one spouse. Makes sense? <laughs> and um, there, is a, there is a tradition in Greek and Roman culture, particularly around women, uh, that they would be Uni vira, that's the Latin phrase. A one man, uni, one. Vir is the word for man in Latin. And the A indicates it's a woman. Uni vira, a one woman man. And that means that you are only married to one person. Even if that person dies when you're in your 20s, you stay true to that memory. Um, I don't know to what extent that that tradition influenced... Uh, for instance, Irish Catholicism. But in Irish Catholicism, which I was raised Irish Catholic, I had, my mom had a cousin whose uh, husband died around the age of 30. She never remarried. And she was regarded with, I mean, really, as this was very, very honorable. She was true to her first husband. Did she maybe just not want to marry? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe it wasn't a good marriage. I, all I know is the, is the story. That's, a, that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, we just don't know. But there is this kind of tradition that was part of Irish Catholicism, which goes all the way back, I think, to the Romans, of this idea. And you actually would find on women's tombstones, as they relate her virtues, she was a one-man woman. And um, Tertullian's wife dies, and Montanism is there to answer this question for him, should he get remarried? And the Montanists say, no. Spirit says no. And uh, there is a huge debate among historians. Did Tertullian actually become a Montanist? 
I tend to think he did. A number of historians who have written much more broad, I haven't written much on Tertullian at all, who know Tertullian much better than I do, have argued, no, he didn't. Uh, he just liked them. But he, he seems to embrace their ethical issues with gusto. Um, in a number of texts, he will write, um, if there is persecution, and you know the Romans are coming to arrest you, should you flee? The Spirit says, no. And uh, this will be very interesting, because there will be people in the church who will embrace that view. And uh, when Cyprian comes along, Cyprian will say, well, no, I, I don't think that's biblical. And there will be a persecution, and he'll go into hiding. And a number of the people in the church will criticize him on the basis of Tertullian's views. By, by this time, Tertullian's dead. And they'll say, the, Tertullian said, the spirit said, don't go into hiding. should never flee from persecution. Cyprian's response is, number one, it's, that's not biblical. Number two, the spirit told me to hide myself. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating to see this, you know, because you see conflict in the life of the church. And because it's so long ago, right, it's in a world very different from ours, uh, you can look at the arguments on each side and how they played it out, and you can learn wisdom of how to face conflict in the church today. One of the things I will do with Cyprian in two weeks is I'm going to address the issues that have, I think, ravaged the church here in southern Ontario over the last three years about obedience to the government. And we've, we have some divisions in the church over should we have obeyed the government mandates about closing our churches, wearing masks, and so on. And Cyprian is absolutely fabulous guy to all that because he faced, he faced these same issues in a different world, different intensity, but he had to face these issues and with extremists on both sides, and we'll see that. So Tertullian writes a number of books. He writes a book on Never Flee uh, in Time of Persecution. He writes a book on, uh, it's called On Monogamy. And you think, oh yeah, he's defending monogamy against polygamy. What he's defending is one woman, one man, one, one spouse, uh, never remarry after the, death of your, after the death of your spouse. And he actually criticizes Christians who argue 1 Corinthians 7, 39 to 40. They say, look, Paul says that. He says, you are carnal. And uh, then the question is, okay, isn't that scripture? Tertullian says, no, no, that was only for the time period between Paul and Montanus. We now have deeper spiritual insight. And it's very interesting. And he quotes, he quotes 1 Corinthians 16, where Jesus says, uh, uh, you're not able to bear all these things now, but when the Spirit comes, he'll lead you into all truth. Tertullian says, aha, this is the deeper truth. And he's got a number like this. He's got uh, one, he's got called the, On the Veiling of Virgins, which is uh, in Greek culture, a uh, woman who uh, was a respectable woman, whenever she went outside the house, always wore a veil. Uh, just part of the Greek world. Roman women didn't necessarily do that. Tertullian thought it was a great idea to do it. And uh, he has a number of prophecies from Montanus prophetesses who, say, who basically say, women, your young daughters who are not married, let them be veiled. And Tertullian says, scripture doesn't address this, 
The Spirit now has given us deeper truth. All our women shall be veiled. And uh, you suddenly realize there's a, there's a real danger here. It's not simply the veiling of unmarried women, but it's adding to Scripture. It's binding your conscience by what God has not said. Even though Tertullian can say, when God has said a thing in Scripture, what more needs to be said? It's how, it's very, how difficult sometimes it can be for men who want to be zealous in ethical issues. And uh, he adds uh, to, to Scripture there. Um, but on the other hand, Tertullian is a fabulous guide to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he writes a book against a man named Praxius. And uh, Praxius was what we call a modalist. So let me explain modalism in a second. Uh, it'll take more than a second. And then Tertullian's response and how helpful Tertullian's response is. So sometimes I've not heard this here, thank God, but I have heard it in a very large church not far from here. Uh, I was visiting and um, uh, a pastor got up to pray. And in his prayer of thanksgiving for the day, he thanked the Father for dying for the church. And uh, I remember it very clearly. And um, my wife wasn't with me. I remember coming home and telling Allison, I, I said, I think I've got to write to the church. This really upset, upset, upset me. And she said, you'll do no such thing. <laughs> and uh, she was right. Uh, because I, you know, it wasn't my church, and you know, I was just visiting once, and uh, I've been back a number of times because I've been, I've been invited to speak. Uh, I think that particular individual is gone, but it's not a, it's not an uncommon thing. I remember hearing um, Anne Graham Lotz, if you know where Anne Graham Lotz is, uh, Billy Graham's son, uh, daughter, <laughs> Billy Graham's daughter. Uh, she was at a women's ministry uh, conference, and she opened in prayer, and I could clear you could clearly hear. She thanked the Father for dying for God's people. Now, you might think, oh, man, you're a meanie, you know. They're just, it's, just, it's extemporaneous prayer, you know. If you put, put them down in a chair, it's clear they wouldn't believe that. And I, I think that's probably true to some degree. But I think it's just the confusion that there is among God's people about the, we, we, aren't, we should be able to articulate that we believe in that there is one God, Right? One God, there's only one true God, who has revealed himself in three persons. One God, three persons. And the Father didn't die for us. The Father sent the Son to die for us. And uh, the sort of confusion that's going on here is it'd be like uh, somebody came up to me and my wife had helped them and started thanking me for what my wife had done. Uh, that's a very rough kind of parallel or analogy. Um, the, the Father sent the Son. We thank the Father for the sending of the Son. We thank the Son for His dying for us. And we thank the Holy Spirit for His coming to make the, the Son's death for us and the Father's electing love that lies behind it real. But it's very important that we have this. Uh, and I think those two illustrations I've gave, given you there uh, illustrate the fact that we are, generally speaking, as evangelicals, ignorant of the Trinity. And I know that's probably a bit of a shocking statement. Um, I've done this, uh, done this kind of little quiz sometimes with my 
uh, early church history class, 150 students down at Southern. And I've asked them. So you've got, most of these students are 25 to 30 years of age, some of them older, probably not many younger because it's a master's degree. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the Trinity in your Christian life? And the last time I did it, out of about 120, 130, about four people put their hand up. I mean, a sermon entirely on the Trinity, opening up what we believe about the Trinity. I'm not saying there's no reference to the Trinity, but a sermon that is preached about the Trinity. So I'm not going to do it here. This is my home church. Uh, And uh, I haven't been keeping track, so I've got no idea what, what our sermons have been on. But I just know that as evangelicals, we don't preach. This is the most fundamental fact about the Christian faith, that our God is one person. There is only one true God, yet he is three. If he is not three, if they're just manifestations of the one same God, we cannot say God is love. Because in eternity past, before, before anything was created, God was loving. The Father loved the Son. And the son loved the father. And uh, in an Augustinian turn of phrase, this is Augustine, the Holy Spirit is the love of the father for the son and the son's love for the father. So when the spirit comes to indwell our hearts, we have that love for the father that the son has and the love for the son that the father has. Nancy? A number of years ago, Pastor John did a series on the, the Trinity. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's, that's great. I, don't, I didn't recall that. That's fabulous. It's good for you to say that. But that's a rarity. To be honest, that is a rarity. Um, now, modalism, modalism denies the distinctions of the persons. It basically says that there is one God who sometimes is the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. And you've got all kinds of problems that if that's your view... And there is a group of people called the Oneness Pentecostals, if you know who they are, uh, or United Pentecostals. There used to be a church down on King Street in the East End, Uh, Oneness Pentecostal. I think they've changed their name. I think they're United Pentecostals now. And they're modalists, classic modalists. And they will argue not simply Jesus is God, that's biblical, but God is Jesus. That is not right. There is only one God who is Jesus, and sometimes Jesus manifests himself as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. But then you've got all kinds of problems. Who is Jesus talking to in Gethsemane? If if Jesus is the Father, he's praying to himself. What's what's going on at the cross? Hebrews 9.14, the Son offered himself to the Father through the power of the Spirit. You have a Trinitarian text there. If, if, you're, if, if you, the modalism is true, then the cross is undermined because the cross is an event in which the Son removes the wrath of the Father upon sinners. And he takes their punishment upon himself, their hell. And so understanding the distinction of the persons and yet one God, is this, is this comp- fully comprehensible by us? Absolutely not. But this is the most fundamental thing about Christianity. This is our big conflict with one or two other issues about maybe the resurrection and the deity of Christ between us and Islam. 
And the Quran, I've gone through the Quran a number of times, and the Quran is a deeply anti-Trinitarian book. It actually says on a couple of places, stop talking about the Trinity. Those who believe the Trinity will go to hell. And the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is the most precious thing in our, in our, in, in our, in our faith. It underlies our, our, the foundation of our faith. If our Lord Jesus Christ is not fully God, yet not the Father, yet fully shares the, the deity with the Father, we're not saved. And likewise with the Spirit. Where do we get all that from? Well, Tertullian. Tertullian faced modalism, and he argued we need to understand God on two levels. Number one, there is one God, and he argued that there is una substantia, one being of God. And yet, he argued, there are three persons. He is the first person, no pun intended there, he's the first person to use the Latin word persona, P-E-R-S-O-N-A, to talk about the... How do we talk about the, the, the three within the Godhead? They are tres personae. So on one level, God is one being. On another level, he is three, three persons. And um, I often talk about Tertullian. He, he's a bit of a crooked stick, right? <laughs> um, I'm not certain I'd always want to be in the same church as the guy. You know, veiling virgins, uh, no marriage after the death of your spouse. So he's a, he's a bit of a crooked stick on these ethical issues. But on doctrinal issues, he is able to write perfectly. So it's, it's, so it's almost like God using a crooked stick or a crooked pen to write straight lines is the way somebody has said. And uh, so it sounds like, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Tertullian then is a very, very important figure. He, he creates a grammar for speaking about God. He is the one who first uses the word Trinity. He invents it. Trinitas is where we get the word Trinity from. Well, he's the first person who ever uses it. It could have been some obscure believer named Gaius Claudius, you know, who we know nothing about, who came to a prayer meeting in the Church of Carthage and said to Tertullian one night, you know, I, we've been talking about how the three can be one and one three. I've got a word for it, Trinitas. Oh, I love it, said Tertullian. I'm going to use that. We don't know, right? When people say, okay, Tertullian invented the word, well, he's the first person to use the word. It could be this guy, Claudius, Gaius Claudius. Could it be Tertullian's wife? You know? I've been listening to you, dear, dear, and you've been going on. I, I think I've got a word for this. You know? I, there is a, it's, it's a combination of two words in Latin. Tres, tri, unitas, trinitas. Why don't we talk about God in terms of trinitas? Oh, I really like that deal. Of course, we don't know Tertullian's wife. I mean, we, that's all speculation. We've got no idea. But Tertullian, then, is a very, very important figure. And the word Trinity captures the biblical understanding of God, even though the word's not in the Bible. And so a Jehovah's Witness has come to your door. You know, you get into... I, I never get talking. No, they haven't come to my door for years. I think they mark your house. And uh, don't go to that door. I don't know. I've heard that. But... Um, uh, you, you know, they want to talk about allegiance to the flag and end time issues and giving blood. And no, no, you, what we need to do is turn the conversation to who is, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they know him savingly? Do they worship him? And I remember once, you know, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And oh, well, okay. And then you, you, try, you try to explain to them about are there, is the Lord Jesus Christ worshipped as God? 
Is he called God? Is the spirit worshipped as God, called God, etc.? So Tertullian then is a very, very significant figure. Um, uh, I'm going to leave for you to read the two sections there about prayer. He writes the first Christian book on prayer and uh, describes the power of prayer. Um, <clears throat> well, let me read that one section. The first uh, uh, from the Apology uh, deals with praying for our governors and emperors. And uh, this is an admonition, by the way, to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but to me. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really favorable to our prime minister. Um, in the privacy of my home with my wife, I've sometimes said some, uh, you know. You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> but I should pray for him. And I, I haven't prayed for him as I should. And uh, that's probably true of all of us. And when, when you read that, <clears throat> praying for these emperors, these, now the emperors in Tertullian's day were pretty good men in terms of good emperors, but they were vicious persecutors of the church. And if that is the case, if Tertullian can urge us, pray for these men, how much more should we be able to pray for our uh, prime minister? But look at the second text there. How much is wrought, the second line, it, how much is wrought by Christian prayer Righteous prayer, uh, it should be the the of should, is not should not be there. Righteous prayer averts the wrath of God, keeps watch in the face of the enemy, intercedes for persecutors. Prayer is the only thing that can prevail with God. But God is willed, but Christ is willed that it work no evil. Upon it he has conferred all power for good. Therefore, it has no power except to recall the souls of the dead from the very path of death. He's thinking here of prayer being used to save sin. God using prayers to save sinners. Uh, to make the weak recover, to heal the sick, to exercise demons, to open prison doors, to, to loose the chains of the innocent. It likewise remits sins, repels temptations, stamps out persecution, consoles the faint-hearted, delights the courageous, brings tra travelers safely home, calms the waves, stuns robbers, feeds the poor, directs the rich, raises up the fallen, sustains the falling, supports those who are on their feet. Prayer is the wall of faith, our shield and weapons against the foe who studies us from all sides. Hence, let us never set forth unarmed. Let us be mindful of our guard duty by day and our vigil by night. Beneath the arms of prayer, let us guard the standard of our general. And let us pray as we await the trumpet call of the angel. We may or may not agree with exactly every statement he makes here, but a very good reminder of we must be a people of prayer. And especially in our day, um, the challenges we face uh, broadly in our culture Oh, that we might be a people of prayer. Well, let me stop here and ask if there are any questions. Um, Tertullian is a, he's a, he's a fascinating figure in many ways. Um, but uh, hopefully you've got a little glimpse of, of this remarkable early Christian theologian. Okay, next week then, um, I want to stay in Carthage and we'll look at Cyprian. I'll bring a text next week uh, about his conversion, which we'll look at. We're going to spend our time looking at about three or four chapters of this uh, letter that he wrote, where he talks about his conversion. And then the week following, we'll look at uh, Cyprian's leadership during persecution. And then the final week, which actually is, is appropriate, it's April the 6th, so just before uh, Easter Sunday and uh, uh, Good Friday, we'll look at a text that deals with... Uh, 
uh, a sermon on, on Easter by Melito of Sardis. Uh, let me close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you are the true and living God with your Son, our Lord Jesus, and your Holy Spirit. We thank you for Tertullian, uh, for those areas of his life that are still bearing fruit in our lives today. And we thank you that uh, we can look back and see yet he was frail as we are and made mistakes and yet you used him. And we pray that we, despite our weakness, might be used by you for good. Now may your peace be our portion this night and throughout this week for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.